Please be seated. Good evening to you. Psalm 34 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We come to the Psalms. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll be happy to get one into your hands. And then, of course, we want everyone to know that if you don't own a Bible, that uh, please um, take that Bible and make it Make it your own. In Psalm 34, we have a kind of a reoccurring theme, uh, reoccurring. Uh, Once again, such a gift for redundancy and repetition. But the reoccurring theme here is, is that it's one of many psalms that give praise to the Lord on David's part, but on other, the part of other psalmists as well, praising the Lord for his deliverance of them from some kind of very, very difficult situation or trial and sometimes a life-threatening kind of trial that they found themselves in. Now, the interesting thing is that these psalms of deliverance, while they have kind of the same general theme related to them, Each one of them is a little bit different in terms of the specifics of that psalm and the praise that is lifted up to the Lord, the song that's lifted up to him as a result of of his deliverance. And this psalm is a psalm of David, and he is celebrating God's deliverance of him from uh, one of his bright ideas. You ever have a bright idea? And then you get going into it and you realize not only was this not that bright, but this is a disaster and so thorough a disaster that it might just cost me my life. And that's the kind of situation that David finds himself in when he writes this trial. And so it's a psalm of deliverance, but it's a psalm of God's deliverance of David from the consequences of a really dumb decision that he had made. I don't know if any of you have ever made a dumb decision as a Christian, but other churches in town are filled with people (laughs) that have done that. I'm so glad we're above that. So we will be dealing with Psalm 34 in a purely theoretical uh, manner tonight, not as if it has anything to do with any of us, but we'll do it simply because it is in the Word of God and we ought to. Now, we all recognize uh, ourselves in this psalm. We're given in the introduction of the psalm, even before you get to verse 1, we're told what the context of the psalm is, and we're told that it's a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. So this psalm came out of a very confusing and hard time in David's life. David was a very young man. This whole episode is is, uh, detailed in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. David is a young man. Because of God's favor upon his life, he had been brought in as a servant and as a really um, distinguished himself as a military leader under Israel's first king, King Saul. And Saul was, of course, a Jew. He was numbered among the people of God, but he was just a crazy man, a very paranoid uh, and, and very, very unstable human being. And so David comes into this environment and, and uh, Saul's paranoia, 
Saul is threatened by God's favor upon David's life. He attempts to kill David and ultimate, multiple times, and ultimately David is forced to flee from the palace for his life because Saul is not only intent upon killing him, but he has marshaled all of his considerable forces to find David, track him down, kill him, and thus eliminate the threat that he felt David was uh, to his reign. So when David looks at his circumstance, he says to himself, there's no safe place for me to hide in Israel because Saul is the king. Uh, They're going to wrap me out no matter where I go uh, here, and he's going to send people and and they're going to kill me right at the beginning of what I think is wonderful promises that God has put upon my life. So he says, I have no place among God's people that is a place of safety. So he got the bright idea of going to the city of Gath, one of the capital cities of the Philistines, and that he would go there and live there because Saul wouldn't be able to uh, find him there or do any harm to him there in the city of Gath. And so he attempts to find refuge from his danger among God's people, refuge among the Philistines, the enemies of God's people there in Gath. Well, the problem develops immediately for David, and the problem is, is, is that Gath was the hometown of Goliath, who David had only killed just a few years uh, earlier. And David is not, uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer on this decision. He goes to Gath for refuge, and he's carrying Goliath's sword with him. Now, this is the, a sword that belongs to a eight-foot guy or something. So it probably looks pretty um, unmistakable. Even if you were to see it on eBay, you would nay, what in the world? Goliath's sword is for sale on eBay or Craigslist. And so he walks right into the city where everyone would recognize this. And then sooner or later, people began, some small group began to suspicion that this was David. And they begin to remind Achish, who is the king of Gath, of a song that had been spoken or sung concerning David, and that is this little after-battle victory song, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, speaking of David's great prowess as a, as a military leader. Now, the problem with that song is that this time in Israel's history, Uh, Almost all of those battles were against Philistines. So the thousands that Saul had killed and the tens of thousands that David had killed were talking about the Philistines, and he's right in one of the capital cities. And if he is discovered in that capital city of Gath, it would be the equivalent of a very high-ranking Israeli general or a high-ranking Israeli cabinet member being discovered all alone in Gaza Strip or uh, in some other uh, section of, uh, you know, Ramallah or something on the West Bank. In other words, that person would realize, I'm as good as dead because I've been discovered in this environment. And so David realizes as this song is being sung and people start to whisper that he's been discovered. And so he uh, is gripped by fear and his method of trying to get out of it is he pretends to be mad. 
with the idea that he begins to act like such a crazy man that no one could even look and say, well, that is impossible. That can't be the David that has killed our frontline soldiers by the tens of thousands, not this madman. So he goes to the gate of the city of Gath. He begins to scratch on it with his nails, his fingernails. He's flailing. He's allowing saliva to go down into his beard. And he's just drooling all over himself. And he's just trying to act like a crazy person. And so Achish, and the plan works, Achish has been informed that we suspect this is David. And he looks at this madman and he says, there's no way that that that's David, that this song was written about. Clearly, it's a case of mistaken identity. And uh, he instructed his servant saying, listen, I've got enough crazy people around me now. I don't need another one. Open up the gate and get this guy out of here. Clearly, this is not David. And David then, they did, they took him out, opened him up, got him out of the city, and David uh, escaped. And his whole ploy was successful. And you leave it in First uh, Samuel chapter 21, and it looks like, wow, David, you know, the lesson of it is to really, when you make a mistake, then come up with a clever idea by which to escape, and, and uh, that's how you get out of a tough spot. But when David writes this psalm later on, when he got out of that city, he never said, boy, that was one smart idea, David. Man, that whole thing, that drooling in the beard, I mean, it made a mess for a little while and all. I mean, I'm not proud of it. I'm glad there weren't cameras back then. Ended up on YouTube or something. But that really worked. That's not what he did. When he got out of that city, he knew he got out of that city for one reason. God had delivered him out of that uh, city. And he knew that he should have died in that city. Only explanation for why he didn't was God. And so here in Psalm 34, David revealed the lessons he learned when he decided to flee the unjust treatment that he was receiving from God's people to try and find refuge among the wicked. Never do that. There are goofballs in the body of Christ. There's no doubt about it. And there are people in the body of Christ that are just as carnal as carnal can be. And they're more hurtful and they're more difficult to be around than, for many of us, than any pagan that doesn't know Christ in our neighborhood. But it's never an excuse to make a decision on the basis of the exception rather than the rule. Those people are the exception in the body of Christ. And Saul was the exception related to that. And the answer is never to run back into the world in order to and partake of what they're all involved in in order to escape mistreatment among God's people. A lot of people do that. They say, I'm not going to church anymore. They treated me. I'll tell you, it was so bad. I'll tell you, I know so many pagans. They had never treated, I never had an unbeliever treat me that way. Fine. Find a new group of friends or find a new church, a new group of Christians But it's never to be used as a justification to go back into the world or to make friends of the world. God will never allow us to be successful there anyway. And so David writes this Psalm 34 so that we can learn from his experience, learn from his mistake. And and so this is why it is written. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. 
Why can a person bless the Lord at all times? There's always a reason to bless the Lord, all of his goodness. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, and my soul shall make its boast in the Lord, and the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So here he is. He's worshiping the Lord. Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 34, some of the purest praise in the entire Bible comes out of this experience. God, you are too much... I just praise you. And he is so filled with thanksgiving and worship toward the Lord because of God's grace in his life. He's not content to just worship the Lord on himself. He begins to try to drum up others to worship the Lord with him. He's trying to put a whole choir together. And what is the reason for his praise of the Lord? And the reason is is that God was faithful to him even when he had made a terrible, terrible decision in his life. And then in verses 4 through 7, he gives the reasons for his praise. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and he delivered me from all my fears. And his fear was, I'm going to die, God, unless you do something here. And they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him speaking of himself and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all those around, all around those who fear him and delivers them. And so here's David. He's not the great king of Israel at this point in time. So he writes the psalm, and it isn't that God saves the powerful, he saves the well-known, he saves the wealthy and the movers and the shakers of life. He's a nobody, he's a nothing in the eyes of everyone but God at this point in his life. And basically he's saying to, and, and declaring for, for those of us who are not in this other category where we talk, where, where here we are, we are Poor we are, overlooked in life, but even that kind of person is not without a friend in, in a difficult situation in life. And he had discovered God's not a respecter of persons. He'll help everyone that is cries out to him in faith in, in, among his children. And then he begins in verses 8 through 14 just to celebrate uh, God's deliverance of him from the midst of the Philistines. He said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the whole idea is to put God to the test. Now, and the goodness of God can be discovered by every single person for themselves. You, you, a, a person, if you sit here tonight and you are not yet a Christian... And you say, boy, you know, all these people tell me this is the greatest life, that God is so amazing, He's so wonderful, He's so good and all. But, man, I've been misled all of my life by people saying a lot of great things about a lot of things that ended up being destructive for me, or they were lies. And David, in essence, says, don't take my word for it. You get your own relationship with God. And see, if you don't discover him to be for yourself what I have discovered him to be, you taste and see see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in him. So as he's celebrating uh, this greatness of this life of knowing God, 
he declares that God will never, ever leave us with a bad taste in our, our mouth. He said, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and they suffer hunger, and those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And so we don't lack anything by living a godly life. And, and then he... Uh, declares in verse 11, come, as he's, he's uh, in giving instruction now for the man who wants to live a blessed life or desires a blessed life. He says, come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In other words, not only have a long life, but the days filled with Good days, here's the recipe. Keep your tongue from evil. Now, da- now uh, and, so, and, and remember now, what David is doing here is he begins to write this last part of, of the psalm here. It, 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 he, well, in verses 1 through 7 is a celebration of God's deliverance of him from that situation in Gath. And then when you begin in verse 8, it's a celebration of God's delivering him from living. The first deliverance is a physical deliverance. The second deliverance that he's celebrating is that God has delivered him from having to spend the rest of his life living like a Philistine. So when he starts to talk about this is how Uh, where a blessed life is found, he's basically telling us to live a life that is the opposite of the life that he saw in Gath, in the Philistines. It's a funny thing. All of life is teaching all the time. All of life testifies to the veracity or the truthfulness of the Word of God, whether it is to obey the Word of God and then discover the blessings that come with that, or to disobey the Word of God and see the curse that is on that kind of life. God doesn't even have to actively curse a person who lives a wicked life. The path itself is already cursed. And so all of life is teaching. And David looked and he said, as he uh, speaking to God here, is, I'm thankful that you delivered me out of Gath physically. But I'm also thankful for this glimpse at life in Gath and that I don't have to spend the rest of my life in that environment or living that kind of life. Now remember, David was raised in a Christian home, so to speak. He was raised in the city of Bethlehem by very, very godly parents. He was a very godly young man. God anoints him as the next king of Israel. He has virtually no exposure to evil. All he's known from his youth is virtue, goodness, all of the blessings that are found being raised in a godly home. Has no exposure to evil at all. Now because of these circumstances, he introduces himself into the world for some short period of time. And the lesson that he takes when he walks away from it, he doesn't cry out to God, wow, I was raised in this Christian home and I went to Gath and what have I been missing my whole life? I mean, they got it all going on there. I've been ripped off. That's not what he says. 
He gets his first exposure to the world, and it produces a praise within his heart. And he says, God, I thank you that you've given me this quick little glimpse of the fact that I haven't missed anything by being raised in a godly home. I haven't missed and am not missing anything in life by not living close to the wicked or living a wicked life. And what it did is it produced within him this experience an appreciation for holiness and for godliness that he didn't possess before. Sometimes it goes that way. So he fails in his life. But I believe in successful failures. And a successful failure is when we fail in a situation, but then we walk away from it and we reassess it. And we say, what did I do wrong here? And then step number two, What do I need to do next time when I find myself in this kind of a situation where I'm being unjustly treated by people who are supposed to know God? And then number three, a commitment to God to say, in the power of your Holy Spirit, the next time I find myself in this place, I commit to not running to gaff, but to staying faithful to you in your promises and watching what you do. So there are successful failures. So we learn, again, God is teaching always through everything in life. And so here is David. He goes into Gath, and what he sees, he's appalled by it. There's nothing where he's licking his lips. And sometimes you hear people tell their testimony of what they were in the world, and then they got saved and all, and you can still sense them. They're smacking their lips a little bit over what they left. I mean, they speak a little too intimately about it, a little too longingly. David looked and, and, and it, it, what it was that had, he'd been spared by being raised in the things of the Lord, and, it, and all of it had no attraction to him at all. And so he said, in the context of what he had seen in Gath, he said, keep your tongue from evil. As he's in that city and he saw all of the damage that was done one person to another, or the damage that was done in the land of the Philistines just by the use of the tongue being used for evil rather than righteousness and for good. And he said, keep your lips from speaking deceit and the lying that was going on in Gath. And he looked at the consequences of that. You go to any part of the world where deceit or lying is acceptable as a way of doing business or a way of living. And I guarantee you, on the basis of that characteristic alone, you will leave that country and say, I am glad I do not have to live in this country because of just what deceit through, the, through speech, will, how low a level that will take a people to as opposed to speaking the truth. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And then depart from evil. Steer clear of it and instead do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So who knows how many fights he saw in Gath and all of the hostility and all of the aggression and all of the everything. And it didn't appeal to him at all. He said, no, the way is the way I was raised in. Be a peacemaker, as Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then 
He gives the conclusion of this righteous life that we get to live. For all of the difficulty, the righteous life is vastly superior to the life uh, of the wicked. Again, we're not missing out on anything by walking with God. And here are the blessing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. In other words, He watches over us. And His ears are open to their cry. He hears our prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The wicked, they have no such confidence as it relates to God. And the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. And many are the afflictions of the righteous. Boy, huh? Wow. Is that right there in the Bible? Yeah. But you know, things can be that way in the world. It's a fallen old place. And many are the afflictions of the righteous in the wicked context of this world. But notice the next word, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is greater than all of it. And he was thankful for God, how God had delivered him. He guards all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. David's there in the city of Gath, and he looks at all of the evil and all of the wickedness, and he says, in in essence, God won't even need to judge it. These people will destroy themselves. That's the thing about evil, is that it, when it operates in a person or in a city or in a nation, it it sows the seeds for its own destruction. There's no future in evil. It will ultimately destroy everyone who practices it and and everyone that is in that context. And so evil itself will slay the wicked. That doesn't even, that is not even counting God's judgment upon them. And so, and so you see it all over where uh, people engage in wickedness and then the next thing you know, okay, this, some, somebody's been shot or somebody's overdosed on this or somebody's been killed in this way or that some other thing has happened like this. Evil is, is its, it has its own kind of sentence attached to it. And the Lord redeems the soul of His servants and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. And the idea is be disappointed for having trusted in Him. And again, the lesson, we're not missing out on anything worthwhile in this world by walking with God. Everything that we're missing is stuff that we absolutely want to miss and not know about. This is one of the great things about walking with the Lord. I've walked with the Lord since 1980, and I'm not, you know, great or the best or this or that. I'm just one person who has a walk with God. And God has made changes in my life and all these different kinds of things. And sometimes, you know, when a pastor comes to be my age, you know, there's a lot of pressure that is the younger generation going to be able to relate to you and where you are. And I'm here, God's been working in your life and they're coming out of the world and you haven't been in the world so long and I haven't been in the world so long. All I got to do really to keep touch with it is just watch the news every once in a while. It's all you need to know. But honestly, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know how bad it is. So what do I do? Take a two-week vacation and go to Thailand and see what the sex slave, 
slave trade is going on over there or go into some urban center and camp out in some crummy apartment where drugs are being dealt or their whole place is under the control of gangs or something like that. And and it's a beautiful thing where God takes and He he cleanses our lives, He sanctifies uh, our, our lives. We grow out of touch with much that's going on in the world, but we trust the Lord to give power to His Word, whatever kind of vessel He's using to speak His Word through. I think about Chuck Smith. He's, uh, he's never had a cup of coffee in his life. Now, how do you feel about yourself? <laughs> never smoked a cigarette in his whole life. Hates to even pick them up when they're put on the ground. His mother told him, never touch a cigarette. And there he is. He's picking it up and he's disobeying mom. He doesn't like it. And yet God uses this guy. doesn't come from a sin background. comes from a Bible background to be a part of the greatest revival. And it didn't just happen in Calvary Chapel. We're talking about a lot of places in the world. But the last greatest revival that's occurred in human history. So the power is in the Word of God. We're not missing anything by walking with Him and being ignorant of the depravity of Gath or the Philistines. In chapter 30, or, or Psalm 35, we have a psalm uh, that is uh, a psalm that is written and communicates uh, the brokenheartedness of the person who has been betrayed by a group of people that they considered to be their friends. And so it's, it's, a, it's a psalm of comfort for when we are betrayed in life. And so David here, he needs protection as he lays out in the psalm from two groups of people. One, those who saw it as destruction or as death, verses 1 through 10. And then he needed uh, protection from the false accusations of his former friends, verses 11 through uh, 28. And so his first request for, uh, from those that are seeking his death, he said, Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Defend me, Lord. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. In other words, God, take out every weapon in your arsenal in order to protect me from these people who are trying to destroy my life and to kill me physically. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them and let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction instead come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. We would call this poetic justice. So David is saying, everything they're trying to do for me, God, it would be so cool if you just turn the whole thing on them and then everyone would see that happen. And that's what he prays for the Lord uh, to, uh, to do. 
And so uh, in verse 9, he gets to how uh, much joy this would produce in him if God would do this. And my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. And, uh, and, and it's always a cause for rejoicing that God is going to work this together for my good. And all my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and needy from him who plunders him. Fierce witnesses, and now he begins to deal with asking the Lord to protect him from the false accusations made by those he thought were his friends. He said, fierce witnesses rise up and they ask me things that I do not know. In other words, they're accusing him of wrongdoing that he doesn't know anything about. He said, they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. They're breaking my heart. And he gives an example of the good that he did for them that was being repaid in evil. He said, but as for me, when they were sick, My clothing was sackcloth. I I took on the garments of mourning. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to my own heart. And I paced about as though he were my friend or my brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. When these so-called friends of mine that have now betrayed me, when they were ill and they were in need of, of prayer and all, I mourned for them in the condition that they were in as I would mourn for my own mother. David said, that's the friend that I was to them. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and they gathered together. Attackers gathered against me and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. And, and, and verse 16, and they tore them with their words. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on, rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions that are trying to tear me from limb to limb? I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let not them rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a, a, a cause. And so here David is asking for vindication against both groups, those that had pretended to be his friends and were not, had betrayed him, and those who never pretended to be his friends but were seeking his destruction. Let them not rejoice over me, verse 19, who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause, for they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also open their mouth wide against me, and they said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it, and this you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, O God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we would have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. And then let them shout for joy and be glad 
who favor my righteous cause. God, if you deal with these people in this way and you judge them in a righteous judgment, then you will cause those that are righteous in the godly to be excited and to be encouraged to see the wicked put in their place. And, of course, that always uh, uh, is a wonderful thing to witness in personal history and in human history. So concerning the righteous, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause and let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant and my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise uh, all the day long. And so here is this wonderful psalm that speaks of uh, the perspective that we're to maintain and, and what we're to do when we are betrayed by those that we think are our friends. It's interesting that Jesus quoted uh, Psalm 35 in his ministry, uh, verse 19, where, he, uh, where we read, uh, speaking, nor let them wink with the eye. And then as Jesus quoted the latter part of that sentence, who hate me without a cause. And so Jesus uh, spoke that. In John chapter 15, and let me just read the context to you. Let it hit you kind of fresh in the context in which he speaks it because he's bringing out the meaning of the psalm. He said, if the world hates you, speaking to his disciples, he said, you know it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. And yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And if I had come and spoken to them, they had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. He's talking about the rejection of himself, Jesus, the rejection specifically by the Jewish religious leaders. He refers to their law. This happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. There's two points there. Number one, whenever Jesus is hated, he is hated without a cause. That is a righteous cause, a legitimate cause. It is always something wrong with the person who rejects Jesus, much less hates Jesus. And the second point that Jesus makes in quoting this verse is that we also will be hated without a cause. Again, John chapter 13, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, Jesus said, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent me. You remember Jesus betrayed by Judas three and a half years. He poured his life into Judas as well as the other eleven. And he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. And even in his foreknowledge, it's it's so appalling 
that Jesus even says, Judas, betrayest thou me with a kiss? And, the, and so this betrayal was a part of the life of Christ. And Jesus said it will be a part of our life as, as well. And because betrayal is a part of the Christian experience, even by those that we felt were our friends and that kind of a thing, they turn around and try and destroy us or something. You say, what's our hope that we have that God is going to work in that situation and put things right. We rest in the fact that if if God could overrule the kiss of a Judas Iscariot directed toward Jesus in that Garden of Gethsemane and work it together for His good and His purposes, then God can take any betrayal in our lives that's been meted out against us by those that we once thought were our friends and claimed to know God, He knows how to take that into His own hands and work it together for good in our lives as well. And so this Psalm 35 helps to bring needed perspective in what is a very, very painful experience uh, in life, in the Christian life even, and uh, to, to help us to process it in a proper way. It happens. It happened to Jesus. Trust that God will work it together for his glory and for your good. Then we get into Psalm 36, and it is a very straightforward psalm where the psalmist David here, he contrasts the wicked uh, with the Lord. And so he begins with a meditation upon uh, the wicked here. He said, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. And he starts to lay out a description. There's no fear of God before his eyes. That's where all wickedness is birthed out of that, a lack of the fear of God. If a person really believes that there is a God and one day I'm going to be judged by God, that has a, a wonderful deterrent effect upon a person's life in terms of how we conduct ourselves in this world. So you take what we're doing in the United States of America today, and that is we are removing the uh, truth of the existence of God and, by, and the influence of the Bible, the Word of God within our culture. And as a result of that, we are removing a needed deterrence in people's heart where they raise, are raised up in an environment with the knowledge that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my life. And if you take that away from a conscience being nurtured by that reality then people are going to begin to do all kinds of things. It'll become uh, a jungle, and that's what's happening increasingly around us. And it all goes back to this lack of fear of God uh, before the eyes of the wicked. He should be feared. He will be feared. (laughs) Trust me. He will be feared. I don't care it's going to happen. It's going to be a hell and it's going to keggers and all my friends and I tell you, and the, all the swagger and all the bluster. You're going to look like the straw man in front of Oz, the wizard of Oz. 
And then there's hope for you at that particular point. There's going to be anybody, no big tough guy thing all over there. You're going to wet your pants. In the context of the true and the living God, in that environment, seeing Him face to face, in the light of who and what you are and what you've been, there are not going to be any tough guys in heaven. That's just stupid talk that people talk about that. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what's going to happen. And for some people it's going to be unto heaven and under eternal life, and others it's going to be under judgment and eternal lake of fire. But that's the future. You take that away from a people, that realization, and you remove from the human conscience and from the human mind a consideration that keeps civility as a part of a nation. And then concerning the wicked, he says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, and he finds out his iniquity, uh, when he finds out his iniquity, and when he hates. And so in order to silence his conscience, he uh, gives excuses then for his iniquity. And it doesn't help when you live in a culture now that supplies you with the excuses for sin. Everything's a sickness. Everything's been redefined. So you got all this stuff where say, well, this person does this because they were born this way. And so they've got this kind of genetic um, uh, uh, tendency toward this particular thing. You say, Damien, do you believe in that? Yeah, I believe in that. <laughs> I believe they're born pyromaniacs. They're born with a fascination for fire, and if they do not guard their life and guard who and what they're supposed to be and walk with God, they're going to start starting st- setting stuff on fire. It's a known fact that 16% of all people who take their first drink will become an alcoholic. They're like born alcoholics. It's just the way that it is. But it's the, why, do we, why do all human beings gravitate toward the sin that we gravitate to and put ourselves into bondage to, except we have a natural tendency toward that that's inside of us? But if, if we look and we say, now there is no more sin or we're not going to criminalize this activity because it's a part of our nature. Now, you can't criminalize anything because it all goes back to the fall in the Garden of Eden. It won't be long is the progression that's going on around us in the Western world. If it continues, it won't be too many decades before nothing is declared to be wrong. We are all a victim of our own natural tendencies. Somebody says, well, how... What can I do? How can I be held responsible for my own natural tendencies? It would be a valid argument if Jesus was never introduced into human history. Because he gives us an opportunity to put our faith in him. And now a greater than our old man is introduced into our life in the person of the Holy Spirit. And now we have the ability to live a life for God, no matter how strong our natural tendency may be toward any sin. And so we are accountable 
But here, this crazy place that we live in, everybody's being supplied with excuses, but they're leaving out an awful big part of the picture. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. And, and, and he has ceased to be wise and to do good, and he devises wickedness on his bed. That's, a, that's a, a strong contrast between what I, I trust is true of most of us. God, people, when we go to bed, put that head on the pillow. Some of you put your head on the pillow, gone. Those of you who do that, there's other people in this room that hate you for that. <laughs> Three hours later, they're still hearing the cuckoo clock in the other room while they're trying to go to sleep. We put our head on the pillow, and our last thoughts of the goodness of God, how good he's been to us for another day, or to take the pressures that are on our life and to lift them up and say, God, these things are weighing on me. It's a big old thing that I'm in the middle of. You tell me to cast my cares on you because you care for me. I need to get a good night's sleep tonight, Lord. And so I give this to you, and I ask that you help me do that. And then we go to sleep. The wicked person doesn't know anything about that. He puts his head on the pillow and he begins to think about the wicked that he did this day, the wicked that the other, the wicked things that he knows that other wicked men and women are doing in the world, and how can he outwicked them in doing wrong to other people in order to gain power, in order to gain wealth. So he lies on his bed and he's thinking about how he can take wickedness to a new level in his own life, a new level in the world. And it's a terrible way to live, but that's the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous are all sound asleep at a certain time in the night, just gone to sleep with the Lord, and the wicked are thinking about how can I be more wicked even tomorrow? And he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. And then in contrast to that is his meditation upon the Lord. And he said, Lord, your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. In other words, it can't be measured. Then he moves from God's mercy to speaking of his faithfulness. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In other words, it's just as limitless. Your righteousness is like a great, the great mountains. It's immovable. In, in, in other words, it can always be counted on. God can always be counted on to do what is right. Let's just take that one little aspect of God. What if we had a God that was everything that he describes himself to be in the Bible everywhere else, but, but on this aspect... You couldn't really always count on him to do what was right in your life. I mean, that would be a fair kind of uh, problem related to things. You see, just how, this, how God, he's just perfect in every single way. He is absolutely perfect. And we love everything about him. So even his, his righteousness, he can, we can always count on him to do what is right as it relates to our lives. Your judgments are a great deep. In other words, they're as deep as the ocean. His judgments, how he works in our lives, his wisdom, 
is so deep, it's so complex, it's so uh, beautiful and, and involved, and, and we see that as His judgments or His ways in our life unfold. And He said, O oh Lord, You preserve man and beast. On top of all of it, He provides for us physically and gives us the material things that we need. How precious is Your loving kindness, uh, O oh uh, God. And so he praises the Lord here for more of his blessings, the loving kindness of God toward us, his love for us. It's wonderful just to think about. We prayed about it earlier tonight. Just think about Jesus loves me. God loves me. Wow. That's a great God. That's an amazing God that he loves me. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. And they are abundantly satisfied with the fullness uh, of your house. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. In other words, it's kind of like you get invited to a, a great kind of party and, and here's all of the more food than anybody could eat or more of the, all the blessings and the abundance of it. And it's talking about the fact that God is a, a very, very lavish host in our life with how He blesses our life. For with you is the fountain of life. He's the source of life, physical and spiritual. And in your light, we see light. He's the source of all light in this world. Take this book, you take the Holy Spirit out of this world, you take all light out of this world. And so in your light, we see light. And then as a result of this understanding of God, he uh, commits to the ways uh, of the Lord as opposed to the ways of wicked man. He says, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who uh, know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. In other words, there is no future in wickedness. And, uh, and that is what David is saying here. But... That's really not our problem because we don't find ourselves as God's people in the ranks of the wicked anymore. And so that's what David is communicating. The contrast between the wicked and God, there's no future in wickedness. The whole future is all bound up in God. That's where the future is. In, in eternity and His plan. And the idea is in reading this to then choose God. Well, I'd hope to get to Psalm 37, but I always uh, hope to get further than I actually do. And um, it talks about fretting a little bit. And uh, so a psalm for the worrier. And uh, so try not to worry too much this week, especially over evildoers, until we get to the psalm next week and uh, get some perspective related to it. So let's have the worship team come forward. I'd like them to lead us in a little bit of worship here this evening before we close and just allow these truths and these great events and David's life and the song that came out of it, what happened between him and God that we recognize in our own relationship with the Lord and to just give him praise for all of that this evening.